0: Thinking Aloud. conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the history of idealism in philosophy. Idealism, essentially, is the philosophical position that the universe is composed of mentation or ideas rather than matter, that even what we think of as matter is actually a mental event or an activity or a mentation or an idea. My guest is Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, who is both a computer scientist and a philosopher, perhaps the leading exponent of idealism in the modern era. Bernardo is the author of Rationalist Spirituality, an exploration of the meaning of life and existence informed by logic and science. Meaning in absurdity, what bizarre phenomena can tell us about the nature of reality dreamed-up reality, diving into the mind to uncover the astonishing hidden tale of nature. Why materialism is baloney, how true skeptics know there is no death and fathom answers to life, the universe, and everything. Brief peaks beyond, critical essays on metaphysics, neuroscience, free will, skepticism, and culture. More than allegory, on religious myth, truth, and belief, and the idea of the world, a multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. And now, I will switch over to the internet channel. Hello again, Bernardo. It's great to be with you.
1: Nice to be talking to you again, Jeff.
0: You know, uh, idealism in philosophy puzzles me, because on the one hand, you have such strong logical arguments in its favor, it has a long philosophical tradition, and I I think it's fair to say, however, it is definitely out of favor today in philosophy.
1: It may be changing, but it has certainly been out of favor throughout the 20th century, and even early in the twenty first century we have a step in between now, which is sort of panpsychism, which became popular late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, but I have hope that idealism is, is coming back. There is something mm-hmm. something in the cultural ethos That makes people open up to that again.
0: Now, I know uh, your inspiration largely comes from Schopenhauer, but when I was growing up and studying philosophy, the uh, major idealist philosopher taught in American schools, I I think, was Bishop Barclay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Subjective idealism, especially, is associated with him. And uh, it is very disputed in academia whether Schopenhauer is an idealist at all. Which is surprising to me because I think he's obviously one. He's both an objective idealist and a subjective idealist. And, uh, and he's listed in some places. The other, the other day I was looking at Wikipedia, which is certainly not reliable. But anyway, it, it gives you a sample of what the culture thinks. And he was listed as a dual aspect monist, which whatever he is, he's not that. You know? <laughs> he's certainly not that. And there are even academics who have written things like, uh, Um, uh, discussions about what they call uh, Schopenhauer's uh, uh, they they used the qualifier they they, they said materialism but uh, they used even a qualifier uh, uh, to to sort of emphasize that and and that's ridiculous Uh, Schopenhauer ridicules uh, materialism in more than one place
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so yeah it's a contentious position but I think uh, uh, I'm fairly certain uh, that Schopenhauer was an idealist. Yeah.
0: Mm. Well, you've now you've used a few terms that many of our viewers may not be familiar with. Subjective idealism, objective idealism, and dual aspect monism. Could you define those?
1: Sure. So dual aspect monism is the idea that, okay, we have access to mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our intuitions, and we have indirect access to matter through our perceptions, what we see, what we hear, touch, smell, and so forth. What what the uh, uh, um, dual aspect monism would say is that mind and matter are two aspects of a third thing, a third, quote, substance, which presents itself to us as sometimes matter, as sometimes mind, depending on perspective. But mind and matter, uh, as such, are not really fundamental. What is fundamental is this third thing that is a pure abstraction, which presents itself to us in these two ways. Mm. Now, then we have idealism, which basically means that uh, all reality is mental. It is all mind. Uh, uh, Yes, we only have access to mind, but we tend to abstract something beyond mind to explain our perceptions and the world out there. What idealism says is, no, 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 no. It's all really only mind. And then there are two options. There, there, there is more, but let's keep it simple. One is subjective idealism, which says that uh, uh, the contents of um, of my perception are all there is as far as the world is concerned. They only exist in so far as I perceive them. Uh, so the world is mainly subjective uh, or fundamentally subjective. Uh, and then there is objective Idealism, which says, well, there is something out there. There is a world out there which we all share. uh, And my perceptions are not it. My perceptions are, are just how it presents itself to us. Beyond my perceptions, there is something. But that something is not matter. That something is mind as well. And the idea here, if I make an analogy with a human being, is, you know, from the inside, I am mind. Everything I experience, by definition, is mind. But from the outside, my mind presents itself to you as matter. In other words, my body, my physical body. Uh, So that's the idea behind objective idealism. Not only does it apply to my body, my mind from within, but present myself to you as perceptions, but the inanimate universe as well, the inorganic universe as well. Behind what we see, behind the images on the screen of perception, there is mind. I I presume that you
0: are an objective idealist.
1: I think, together with Schopenhauer, I am both an objective idealist and a subjective idealist. And what that means is, uh, uh, I think, what we call the physical world exists only insofar as it is perceived. So, my perceptions uh, do not correspond Uh, isomorphically or one-to-one with the physical world out there, my perceptions are my physical world. My perceptions are all there is to the physical world I experience. But there is something more than the physical world. There is a world behind perceptions, which is mental, not physical. So, from this latter perspective, I am an objective idealist. There is a shared universe out there, but it's mental. Uh, And I'm a subjective idealist in the sense that I think as far as the physical world is concerned, there is only perception. Nothing beyond that as far as physicality.
0: And I gather you feel that your opinion would be in alignment with Schopenhauer.
1: Completely, yeah. It's something I discovered after I had already um, elaborated uh, on my philosophy. Uh, Actually, uh, it's something I really discovered last year. Uh, I knew bits and pieces of Schopenhauer, I had read bits and pieces, but I think it took 10 years of thinking through the issues myself in order to be able to read Schopenhauer and not only understand, but recognize it and really sort of grasp, oh, this is what he means, because he sort of tends to contradict himself. If you read him literally uh, and uncharitably, he sort of contradicts himself all over the place. Um but after all these efforts, seven books, ten years of thinking this through, when I read him again, I thought, of course, finally, finally I understand what he means. Uh, Schopenhauer
0: is, uh, by many people, considered part of the school of German
1: idealism, along with Kant. Some some would dispute that. Uh, some would say you now the, the German idealism is really you know the Hegel side of things, the so-called absolute idealism. But uh, yeah, okay, Kant was German, Schopenhauer was German. They sort of lived more or less at the same time, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. So yeah, on a sort of German idealism. yeah.
0: Let's go back for a moment to to my philosophical history and, and Bishop Barclay. Uh he's often thought of as at least in in the United States and maybe English speaking countries as as the main proponent of idealism that, that uh, of course, he he was also a, a bishop in the Church of England, and uh, I think ultimately he justified his idealism by saying everything is really exists in the mind of God, and, and that explains it all.
1: Yes, he was a subjective idealist. So what he would say is that all there is to the world is what we perceive, are the contents of perception. Uh, but then you run into an issue which is, uh, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's looking at it, does the tree really fall in the forest? Because he just said that perceptions are all that exist. Uh, You run into other trouble, other problems, like, you know, if I uh, drive into my garage, I see my car, I see the garage, so they exist insofar as I see them. But then I come up and I sleep, does the garage and the car then, do, do they disappear while I'm asleep? If so, how come they sort of, pop up exactly where they were next morning when I go and look at them again, right? Yeah. And, and also runs into issues of solipsism. If perception is all there is, why do we think we share the same world? Because you have some perceptions, I have others if all there is is perception, why are my perceptions sort of synchronized and aligned with yours, so much so that we think we inhabit the same planet, the same universe? So, Barclay solved this by saying, well, if no human, if no organism is looking at things, then the state of these things is preserved because God is always looking at them. God is always perceiving. It's a sort of inelegant way to get out of it Uh, to really get out of it elegantly you need to to have some kind of objective idealist position which is you know the state of the physical world is preserved not as the physical world but as a mental world that presents itself to us as physicality but when nobody's looking at it it still exists not as physicality as mentality but it's still there
0: Well, it seems to me that this idea of a mental world that exists independently of your thoughts or my thoughts is very similar to Barclay's idea of the mind of God. It could be, but
1: you see that both would say there is a world out there that is independent of my personal individual mind. For Barclay, it would be the mind of God. But for Barclay, he would say, that this world still looks like uh, what it looks to me because God is perceiving it. So it still exists as perception, as forms and colors and sounds and flavors and smells. It still exists there because God is perceiving it. It exists in the same way that it it exists to me when I am experiencing it. Um, For Schopenhauer, for instance, to contrast it, this world out there would still exist, but not in the form we perceive it. It would still exist as the will, as a set of volitional states that strive. And because they strive, they are dynamic, they change, they evolve. Um, it wouldn't exist as colors, flavors, uh, uh, smells, if no human being is looking at it. It would exist as volitional states. That's Schopenhauer. Mm. For Barclay, it would still exist but it would still exist as colors, flavors, melodies, and all that, because God is perceiving all that. You see the difference?
0: It, it's a subtle difference to me, since uh, in either case we don't really have direct access to the uh, ultimate nature of reality, so so it's an inference at, at the end
1: of the day. Everything is an inference except solipsism. Because, you know, what is an inference? An inference is when you are postulating the existence of something that goes beyond your direct personal experience. If you don't do that, you are locked into your direct personal experience. Then you are a solipsist. All that exists is your own personal mind and everything else is just appearance. For instance, if I were a solipsist, you would exist to me only in so far as these pixels on my screen. There would be no real Jeff Mishlov with an inner life who experiences love, who experiences sadness, who goes about his life, who has an inner life. That's an inference because I don't have access to your inner life from mine. So if you don't want to infer, you are a solipsist. And as Bertrand Russell said, even those who profess to believe in solipsism actually don't. Because if you really believed in solipsism, you would do nothing. You would talk to nobody, right? You wouldn't even argue the case. Why would you argue? You know, whoever I'm arguing with doesn't really exist. It's just an image in my mind. So so the question then is, which inference is better in terms of conceptual parsimony, in terms of empirical adequacy, in terms of internal logical consistency that's the question you're you're bound to inferences anyway
0: speaking of solipsism i'm under the impression that the, the people who wish to attack idealism as a philosophy often use solipsism as their weapon and say that your, your philosophy is is just another version of solipsism and that leads uh to mental illness even
1: yeah, that's the argument of people who don't know what you're talking about, right? And, uh, and they're mm-hmm. arrogant enough to think that they actually do. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are other lines of silly uh, argument against idealism. Another one is, I, I just saw it the other day, or even today, comment online, uh, somebody saying, well, uh, idealism can't be true. Because we know the universe existed before consciousness arose, so if always in consciousness, then that couldn't be the case. I mean, that's entirely circular reasoning because Mm -hmm. you're you're assuming that uh, consciousness is generated within organisms. So before organisms arose, there couldn't have been consciousness. Well, it's it's a question begging argument. You are assuming that which you are trying to defend in the argument in your argument. Uh, uh, the point in contention is precisely whether consciousness is generated or whether it's there to begin with. Uh, The idealist would say consciousness is there to begin with before life arose, and life just corresponds to a particular, local, uh, uh, dissociated configuration of consciousness. So, yeah, there's a number of silly arguments against idealism. They they, they don't need to be taken seriously, but there are some good arguments out there uh, as well.
0: Given that the mainstream philosophical community has turned against idealism, although I, I suspect at one time it might have been much more open to idealism than it is today, uh, what would you say is the, the
1: strongest, most compelling argument that caused that turn? Hmm. I think it's a bad argument, ultimately, but it, it, it has appeal uh, uh, if you don't think it through. Um, What happened in the 19th century, um, two parallel processes, Um, science evolved very quickly and proved its effectiveness uh, through the development of technology. The the, the 19th century was the Industrial Revolution really uh, achieving, you know, uh, escape velocity, so to say. say. In in the 18th century, things were beginning, but it became… mass-distributed sort of railways, telegraph, and all that in the 19th century. Um, And science, because scientists need to be objective, uh, psychologically, materialism was conducive to science because it allowed uh, experimenters and theorists to disassociate themselves from what they were experimenting with, you know, this neutral third-person Perspective in science. So there is a psychological affinity between materialism as a philosophical position and scientific development, but it's purely psychological. There is no philosophical argument uh, to to be made there because you can do science exactly as we have done under idealism as well, perhaps even better. But there is this psychological thing, you know, mater- uh, under materialism, I am detached from the physical world because my consciousness is generated in my head. It's not part of the physical world, so I can experiment impartially. So, that that's one thing. The other thing is what Nietzsche called uh, the death of God, um, what others um trying to remember uh that there are other ways to refer to, to what happened in the 19th century, especially the second half of the 19th century, which was this general disillusionment uh, with uh, the dogmas of religion, which uh, were then seen as naive, as um, you know, cheap explanations for what's going on, because perhaps for the first time in human history, they were taken solely, literally uh, there was this 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 thing in the human mind, this separation between metaphorical truth and literal truth before they were conflated. you know uh, there is this nice episode of Star Trek in which um, I think next generation in which they meet an alien race that communicates only in terms of metaphor and it takes Picard and his crew a long time to figure out what was going on. I mean that alien race could have been us centuries uh, ago. But then in the 19th century, there was this literal approach and the death of God, this century of disillusionment. we lost access to meaning uh, with the, the, the disillusionment uh, with religion, with religion out of play. What is the meaning of our lives? And, and then there is this fluid compensation, this uh, psychological phenomenon in which you, you compensate for that loss of meaning, for trying to find meaning elsewhere, And and physicalism played big time on that hand. Physicalism gives you access to other sources of meaning, uh, like, you know, uh, the work you do, which survive your presence on this planet. Uh, um, Elitism, this idea that you belong to a valued elite and the rest of the world can't really understand what you're doing. So, you know, you have this uh, self-affirmation that is also a source of meaning and a number of others. Um, I think that's basically what happened. And before that, you know, just before this happened, at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, idealism was basically mainstream. Um, Hegel was uh, provided the sort of philosophical underpinning for for Protestant Christianity in northern Europe, Uh, northern Germany, Denmark, you know, uh, the Netherlands. Um, That was the time of idealism. But somehow in the 20th century, despite the gigantic problems of materialism, uh, uh, insoluble problems, arguably, it was somehow considered the most plausible uh, uh, philosophy. It's a mind-boggling thing. I think 100 years from now, we will look back at the the 20th century and we we will say, man, we were crazy. What were these people thinking? (laughs) So,
0: are are you suggesting, then, that the shift away from Hegelian philosophy occurred uh, f- more for sociological reasons than because of the
1: logical power of criticisms of Hegel? I'm not a defender of Hegel. I just mentioned him because he was an idealist, an absolute idealist, which I'm not even going to bother to explain because I don't really understand it, to be honest. Who understands Hegel? Um but uh, the choice for a certain philosophy as the mainstream of a culture, almost 100% of the time, well, perhaps 100%, I can't think of an exception, is made for social psychological reasons. It's not based on the merit of the argument. That, that's, that's how humanity works, you know. Well,
0: now I recall uh, a famous episode, and again, I'm going back to Bishop Barclay, uh, and his era, uh, in English, uh, literature. One of the you know, famous people of that era was uh, Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first dictionary, and he was followed around by a, a fellow named, um, Bosworth, I believe it was his biographer and and they 're talking about bishop Barclay's philosophy and uh, Samuel Johnson kicks a stone, and he says that 'll put an end to it, uh, implying that anybody with common sense will realize that uh, idealism is is
1: obviously wrong and That's the kind of uh, what philosophers would call vulgar intuition, Uh, you know, things that seem to have a psychological appeal until you think about it and you realize that it doesn't work. Uh, Johnson's argument, you know, uh, uh, kicking the stone to prove uh, materialism makes a case for idealism because, you know, when you kick the stone, you experience the concreteness, the solidity of the stone. It's an experience, concreteness, solidity, palpability. These are qualities of experience. So by emphasizing those qualities in kicking the stone, what he's saying is uh, experience takes precedent, precedence. Experience is what guides uh, uh, our view of what is really real. Look how concrete it is. I kicked this stone. It hurts my toes. You know, it's really there concretely, palpably. Hey, that's idealism because a physicalist would say when I kick the stone and I feel the stone, all of those qualities are just inside my head. They are generated by my brain. The real stone out there, I have no direct access to. It's a purely abstract entity described by mathematical equations. Maybe it has form in the sense of abstract spatial relationships, but everything else is purely abstract. It's just that my brain translates that stuff, which I can't even visualize because I can only visualize in terms of qualities, translates that stuff into the solidity, the concreteness, and the palpability of the rock. But for the materialist, that's all in the head. It's not really out there. So you see, Johnson's argument, uh, if uh, really scrutinized, it's an argument against materialism and for idealism. But vulgar intuition kicks in, lazy thinking, and, and somehow it gets transformed into the opposite of what it actually is. Well,
0: I recall in an earlier discussion, you pointed out how seductive materialism is. Uh, and, and I suppose that Johnson's ex- example would uh, indicate that.
1: Uh, materialism is seductive insofar as it is not understood. Uh, I, I wrote a segment about this, I think, in my book, Why Materialism is Baloney. I say, it's a game of steel and switch. The apparent intuition of materialism is based ...on something that actually doesn't follow from materialism. This idea that the world is concrete, it's really there, I can hold it, I can shake it, I can kick it. Well, these are all qualities of experience. Uh, Or the notion that, no, the real world, it's out there, it's not in my head. Well, that's what idealism says. The world is not in your head. It's your head that is in the world. Because there is only experience and your head is an experience. The materialist would say the world insofar as you experience it is entirely in your head. When you look up and you see the stars, your real skull, the inner surface of your skull, is beyond the stars you see. Because the stars you see are a product of brain activity inside your skull. So is that intuitive? Not at all. When you really scrutinize the implications of materialism, what it is actually saying, it is the least intuitive alternative on the block. It's a candidate for being discarded immediately. Um, But somehow it appeals to the intuition of idealism as if uh, it were idealism. And and people defend idealism based on intuitions that are actually idealists. It's a ridiculous cultural phenomenon. It's really uh, amazing.
0: Well, I'm under the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, that probably the reason that idealism was at one time thought of more favorably is is because of Immanuel Kant, that he's, uh, to my uh, limited understanding, I certainly don't have a degree in philosophy, uh, but I understand that Kant would be the major proponent of idealistic philosophy.
1: Uh, would you agree? He opened the door. Um, he wouldn't be an an ontological idealist in the sense that he never said that the world is essentially mental. What he did was to say, whatever the world essentially is, the world out there, I have no access to it. It's what he called the noumena. Um, And what he said is, I only have access to the phenomena. In other words, I only have access to how the real world presents itself to me My perceptions is all I know, but the thing that is behind my perceptions and which in some way conspires with my perceptual apparatus to generate my perceptions, that thing behind the noumena, I have no access to it and I cannot say anything about it. So this idea of transcendental idealism is basically a recognition of our epistemic limitations, the limitations of our knowledge. Um, and it it sort of eliminates a certain naivete that there was before Kant, which is that our perceptions correspond one to one with the outside world. Uh, that um, you know the qualities I experience are really out there. There is color out there. There is melody out there. Now that that's a naive view, because color. Uh, uh, melody, uh, flavors, these are all the results of the interaction of your perceptual apparatus, of your cognitive system with whatever is out there, but you, you cannot make any statement about what's out there. And it is this separation that eliminated that naivete that opened the door for real ontological or metaphysical idealism, because people said, well, if I don't have access to it, then the best and most parsimonious inference is that the nature of the noumena out there is the same as the thoughts, emotions, and perceptions in here, because that's the only thing I have access to. And that's the door that opened. And then Hegel came in, Schopenhauer came in, um, but Kant himself, yeah, I don't think transcendental idealism is real ontological idealism. It's more of an epistemic thing. Mm. Well,
0: as I recall uh, somewhere in in one of his writings Kant suggested that perhaps uh, mystics did have direct access
1: to reality. He made a couple of comments like that he made also a comment about that uh, uh, Swedenborg um, uh, he was impressed with uh, something Swedenborg did. Swedenborg was not in Stockholm, I think. I think he was in Germany. And then he had this vision of a great fire uh, uh, back home in Stockholm. And he described it in details. And as, it, as they found out later, know, this is before the Telegraph. As they found out later, there was a fire exactly as Swedenborg had described. And Kant was impressed with it, although I don't think he would... We know that because of archival research. I don't think uh, he would admit that in public uh if you know so he he was triggered he was impressed by certain things um but his his argument is an epistemic argument even the world the the word transcendental that he uses it, he he employs it in a way totally different from the meaning we attribute to transcendental today for us transcendental today is something spiritual something beyond the immediate vicinity vicinity of this world for him transcendental means not accessible through direct perception. That's all he meant. So for Kant, physicalism is a transcendental philosophy because it's postulating the, the the existence of something beyond your perceptions. Your perceptions are just the representation of something that you cannot directly access. So it is in that sense that it's transcendental. Uh, I don't think, based on this epistemic conservatism of Kant, I don't think he would ever officially or publicly acknowledge uh, anything related to psi phenomena parapsychology although he was intrigued
0: today in philosophy you, know, you have people like daniel dennett who argue uh, that consciousness doesn't even exist at all and <laughs> which is about as far away from idealism as i suppose you can get
1: it is a puzzling thing that people can make this which is probably Uh, It was Galien Strawson who said, this is the weirdest statement, the weirdest thought ever to arise in the human mind, not only in philosophy, but uh, in any field of human activity, right? Because knowledge starts from where? Knowledge starts from mind. Uh, Before we construct theories of reality, all there is is mind, is consciousness. Otherwise, everything would be a blank uh, not even dark, because dark is a perception, is a, is, a, is a quality of experience. So, and somebody who is not stupid, like Daniel Dennett and a few others, to make a statement like this, and, you know, years ago I thought there is something subtle and impenetrable behind this statement I, that, that I don't understand, because otherwise it's just stupid, right? It's just outright crazy, Um And I looked for it for a long time and I concluded it's not there. It's just not there. It's something to be studied by psychology, I think. People who seriously defend this point of view that consciousness is not there is uh, award serious case studies in psychology. Because what we have here, we have consciousness denying that consciousness exists. I mean… it. It's sobering uh, that that, that a professor, who is otherwise an intelligent man, makes a statement like this. But I I just could not find any deeper line of argument behind this. I think it is just what it seems. It's absurd. Outright crazy. I assume that he's trying to say, well, we're
0: processing information and uh, we're doing it so rapidly that we actually
1: think we're having an experience, but we're not. The argument against this is when you think you're having experience, that's already an instance of consciousness. So consciousness cannot be an illusion because where do illusions happen? They happen in consciousness. So the illusion the illusion itself is already an instance of that which you are denying. So, when you say consciousness does not exist because it's an illusion, hey, then consciousness needs to exist, because an illusion is a dynamics of consciousness. Something has to be eluded. It's not lights out. The lights are on. Even if everything that you experience does not correspond to some objective truth, you still experience that. And An illusion is something experienced. It is phenomenality. It is already an instance of consciousness. Uh, the only way I can reconcile that with a minimum degree of sanity is to imagine that what these people call consciousness is, is some particular configuration of consciousness. Because otherwise, they're just crazy. It's just outright nuts. To, to consciously deny the existence of consciousness. And if that's the case, then, then if what they are denying is a particular configuration of consciousness, then the whole argument is trivial and it doesn't do what it's meant to do. Because the hard problem of consciousness is not about explaining particular configurations of consciousness. It's about ex- explaining the existence of experience to begin with. So if I am correct that they are, what they are denying is a configuration of consciousness, then it doesn't solve the heart problem at all. It doesn't even scratch it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I I do. I've never been able to figure uh, this line of philosophy out. But uh, jumping around a a little bit, let's uh, go back to Schopenhauer. Uh, And you indicated earlier that he believes that the, um, world, uh, independent of our experience, is composed of will.
1: Yes. The Will, capital um, W.
0: The, the Will. And I, obviously, he means
1: something different than my individual will. Absolutely. Uh, Schopenhauer uh, uh, started from where uh, Kant left off. Kant said, you know, uh, my experiences are the phenomena. And what is behind the phenomenon and that sort of triggers it or causes it or participates in its arisal in one way or another is the noumena. And I will make no statement about that because it's beyond knowledge. It's transcendental in that sense. And Schopenhauer said, no, 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 no. We can make a statement about it. Because, you see, all we have as far as other things are concerned, other people, rocks, mountains, trees, lakes... All we have is the phenomena, which Schopenhauer called the representation, the way they appear to us on the screen of perception. But we don't know the thing in itself. We don't have a first-person perspective of rocks, lakes, mountains, and other people. Um, but then Schopenhauer said, there is one thing I have a first-person perspective of that, I, that, that do not, does not require representation. I have direct knowledge of it. There is one thing. And that is me. I do not appear to myself purely in the form of representations. Even if I seal myself in a sensory deprivation chamber and I can see nothing, I can hear nothing, I can smell nothing, I can feel nothing, there is still something it feels like to be me, right? I don't disappear if my my perceptual apparatus stops working. If all my senses go blank, I don't disappear. I have another access, another epistemic channel to, 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 to gather knowledge about me beyond representation, beyond perceptual appearances. And, then he, and, and that is what – what is that? And then he, he said, that's a will. Because if I eliminate all images from sense perception and all images from imagination, dreams, visions, and all that – There still remains certain feelings, and those feelings are of a volitional nature. Uh, There is something I want or I don't want, that I fear or desire, that I like or dislike, that makes me glad or unhappy. All these things are volitional states. Uh, volitional in the sense of desire, but also volitional in the sense of fear. Because what is fear? The fear is desiring not to be around that thing, right? It is an inverted form of desire, but it's volitional nonetheless. So that was his great insight. And then he said, if from the inside I appear to myself as will, as volitional states, then the most parsimonious inference is to say that will is what underlies everything else as well. The entire world outside um, must arise on this substrate of volitional states. They are not my volitional states, but they are volitional states as well, because that's how I appear to myself from within. And although I can't be other things, it's a very reasonable inference to say that it is the will that underlies them as well. So, that is the key step Schopenhauer made, and I think it's a brilliant step.
0: Well, I suppose, going back to ancient times, people have uh, attributed uh, willful states to the divine. Absolutely. We, yeah, we uh, talk about God's intentions all the time.
1: Yeah. And then, look, to say that everything is will is a very broad statement, that people tend to interpret in specific ways and forget that they are the ones laying those extra constraints on it. Um, One is to say, all will is deliberate. Like our will can be deliberate. We can consider alternatives very self-reflectively and consciously choose one of those alternatives. And that's what I want. That's what I choose. That's deliberate volition. Uh, But there are many other kinds of volition. There is volition that's completely not deliberate. Instinctual volition is not deliberate. You know, uh, my cats usually don't deliberate about what they want. Sometimes they seem like they do, but (laughs) mostly they don't. But they still have will, and it's not deliberate. So when we say everything is will, and Schopenhauer is very clear about that. He dedicates pages in the first volume of The World as Will and Representation, emphasizing that when he says that, the will is what underlies the entire world. It doesn't mean that it's deliberate volition as we experience, because deliberate volition, and he has a whole scheme of things. He says it requires, you know, abstract representations. And I'm not Im- imbuing the world with abstract representations. It gets technical, but the spirit is to say, I don't mean that everything is deliberate. I don't mean that a stone chooses to fall dying down the mountain because it deliberates that it should fall down the mountain you know that's one thing Uh, another thing we have to guard against is what are the boundaries of the will as it manifests in the world when i say that the whole world is will is it implied in that statement that individual rocks have a will of their own does it mean that a lake has a will that is different from the river that uh, that uh, that's connected to that lake. Where are the where are the boundaries of this will? So, a, a specific answer to this question is not whatever the answer is is not implied by what Schopenhauer said. If we want to go further in what he said, you will realize, um, and I wrote a book about it that will be, be published uh, next year. You realize that only living beings, in his point of view, have this. Uh, individuated will a will bound to the to the boundaries of a body uh, as far as representation is concerned that i have my own will and you have another will and my girlfriend downstairs has another will and my cats have another will but two rocks don't have separate wheels they are the manifestation of the general forces uh, of nature as schopenhauer describes it so behind the inorganic universe There is only one will, which you could call the will of God, if you you want, because that would be the will that underlies the entire inanimate, inorganic universe, the non-dissociated will in my own uh, terminology. And he also emphasizes that 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 cosmic, universal will is not deliberate. It is instinctive. It's a, a striving will. And it's because it sort of strives more or less blind, it's because of that, that that the universe is dynamic. I mean, look at what it took nature to make us, right, three and a half billion years of evolution on this planet, all together, with countless living beings having died over the millennia in excruciatingly horrible ways, you know suffering is the mainstay of what's going on. So for Schopenhauer, it couldn't have been uh, planning, cold, deliberate mind that would have given rise to this. And from his point of view, nature is clearly striving blind and making more mistakes than it than course points, and creating a lot of suffering that it doesn't actually want to have, but it's sort of feeling its way in the dark, trying to get somewhere that it Nature itself doesn't really know in a deliberate self reflective metacognitive way like you and I do only we have this capacity uh, and that's why we are appalled by the the violence and suffering of nature
0: very interesting uh, point of view. Um- So, I assume that Schopenhauer and other idealists like yourself have no problem with the uh, question of human free will, which I gather is a real problem for many physicalists and materialists.
1: Why would you say that?
0: Uh, That it's not a problem?
1: Yeah, what made you say this? That it's not a problem for Schopenhauer? Well,
0: because because Schopenhauer seemed to uh, express a direct... Uh, access to his own uh, states of will as if those were
1: primary. Yes, yes, the will would be primary. The will is basically volitional conscious states. And Schopenhauer calls it will instead of consciousness because he needs these states to have two features. One, uh, the universe is dynamic, things are happening. So there, there, there needs to be an impetus. For things to happen if it's consciousness underlying everything. So it's volitional because only volition has impetus. And two, these states have to be originally endogenous because before the first human being or the first living organism arose uh, uh, and perception therefore arose, representation, the only states that this consciousness could have were endogenous states like volition. Volition is an endogenous endogenous state. I don't need perception to feel like or to not feel like doing something. Uh, That's why he calls it will instead of consciousness. That does not mean, however, that for Schopenhauer or for me, uh, that this will is free in the sense of, uh, there's a name for that, but I'm I'm blanking, libertarian. Uh, It doesn't mean that the will is free in a libertarian sense, and so so for Schopenhauer, as far as Schopenhauer is concerned, although he, he I think he does explicitly deny that at some point, but the logic of the of his system does not, in principle, deny that the will is determined. It's determined by instinct. A crocodile is a very instinct is a very predictable animal. You know, you can predict exactly what it's going to do under what conditions. and you know, the experts know that. Why? Because it's instinctive will. So it's so predictable that we feel tempted to say it's deterministic. Um, I personally think the whole problem of free, free will is an invention. Uh, it's a conceptual invention of human beings. I don't think the problem exists to begin with. Let me explain you uh, why. Um, When we say free will, we don't mean that a choice is completely indetermined. It is determined. It is determined by my preferences, right? Uh, If it were completely indetermined, it would be random. It would be uh, 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 completely unpredictable. Um, It wouldn't have any consistency. And that's not what we, we see as free will. Free will just means that I am free to choose according to my preference, preferences. In other words, my choices are determined, but they are only determined by what, what I am, not by outside constraints. And, and
0: you presumably also have the freedom to change your preferences if you wish
1: which basically means that we evolved another preference, a preference for changing an, an earlier preference. But it's always determined. So when we say I have free will, it only means that my choices are determined by internal states, states that I identify with. But it's still determined. It's not random. It's not libertarian. Um so, when we say free will, what is the conceptual space between pure randomness and full determinism when we talk about free will? And you realize that free will is actually determined. It's just that it's determined by that which I identify with. But it's determined. So, I think the whole problem of free will is, is, a, is it, the question is badly posed. It suggests a problem that is not really there.
0: Maybe another way to look at it is the the question of teleology or purpose. Now I, I understand that in mainstream science teleology is ruled out. Uh, there's no room for it uh, except maybe in some areas like management science. Uh, in right. Schools schools of business refer to objectives and and purpose and think of it in a scientific way, but most physical physicists don't seem to have any room for teleology at, at all. But I gather that uh, as, as a an idealist, you're not ruling that out. Uh, teleology has a role in idealism.
1: Yes, and uh, Schopenhauer even wrote, I think, a whole chapter could even have been titled teleology. But if not, it's a chapter about teleology. Anyway, he wrote extensively about it. uh, And and I am with him on that, uh, and (laughs) many other things that I've discovered. Um, And the idea is, okay, if it is consciousness that underlies everything, or the will of Schopenhauer, um, then this consciousness, because it strives, because it's doing something, it's trying to get somewhere, it has a telus. There is a state that this cosmic consciousness would consider optimal, that would make it feel like, oh, yes, that's what I was looking for all the time. So this teleology is there. Whether it is deliberate, it's a completely other question. You, you can have instinctual teleology. Uh, you can have an instinctual goal, and you can't even tell yourself what that goal is. But you know if you're getting closer or further away. You know whether it's cold or warm, if you know what I mean. You can tell based on your direct experience, your feelings, uh, whether you're going in the right direction. Am I getting? Am I feeling better as I go in the direction, in this direction, or am I feeling worse? If I'm feeling worse, I'll make a cor- course correction. And uh, and you can say that uh, you can abstract the idea that there is an attractor behind this, that there is a future state that sort of tools the development of current states towards it, like the gravity well of a black hole, whatever. But that's already an abstraction. Um, you may, We may need a different theory of time to reconcile that with current knowledge. But even if you don't really have that attractor. Like in chaos theory, we talk about attractors, but it doesn't mean that there is anything in the future pulling the system. It only means that uh, the constraints and dynamics of the system are such that it looks like it's being pulled. And I think for universal consciousness, for the wheel, the same rationale applies. We know whether it's getting warmer or getting cold, because that's an instinctive Re- instinctual reaction and, and that reaction may may happen at a cosmic level um, but it could be that we are sort of blindly striving towards that and we often make mistakes we fall into local minima and we need to make course adjustments certainly it looks like that because the evolution of the universe from a from the perspective of consciousness is pretty haphazard you know there's a lot of suffering a lot of shit happening <laughs>
0: Now what what you're saying now reminds me of uh, i suppose uh, this would be a view associated with what some people call the perennial philosophy uh the idea that uh, ultimately we are all moving toward a state of mystical union and that's really what we desire even unconsciously but uh because we're not aware consciously of that desire it often gets uh Translated erroneously into things like drug addiction and uh, other forms, of sexual addictions and food addictions and things of that sort.
1: Surely, I mean, in Jungian psychology, you know, the gods don't disappear; uh, they never disappear. They went into the bottle of alcohol, and then, you know, and, and they went elsewhere. Sex. Uh, we are all striving, I think, uh, for this, um, this, this state of oneness. This collapse of, uh, of dualities, uh, what Jungians would call, you know, individuation. When you, um, when, when the polarities sort of collapse into each other and you realize that they were never really different, they were never really apart uh, to begin with. Um, but I am not very romantic about this. I think this is true. I can't argue logically in a compelling way. For it, it's more of a, a feeling, an intuition. You know, there's a bunch of things I think, but can't justify, so they never go in my books, into my books. Um, I, I think this is true. I think nature as a whole is striving for this indi- the cosmic individuation state. It's not a return to what it was. It's like a, 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 the circle of a spiral. You know you sort of go to the same place again, but at, at a higher level, uh, because you have had the experience of not having been that. And I think this is what we are all striving for, uh, but I don't think it is this nice, uh, 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 virtuous, and, and and exhilarating state of uh, of of cosmic nirvana. I, I, I think it's a very painful process, um, and I think anybody who has undergone the the process of individuation, as Jung, Jungians call, uh, will acknowledge that it's not a pretty road. It uh, it It's a very arduous uh, uh, path in which you you have to confront things in you that you really don't want to be there. You don't want to acknowledge and which are very painful to integrate. Uh, So, yeah, I, I believe that, but not in this romantic way that we see in the New Thought movement.
0: You know, I've done a number of interviews with, with people talking about idealism from various perspectives. And you've used the term romantic now several times saying you're not a romantic. And, and yet I understand it was the great romantic poets who were, uh, contemporaries of people like Schopenhauer and uh, Kant who, who made some of the most forceful, I, I can't call them arguments, but in, in a social since they were, in effect, arguments for uh, an idealistic worldview.
1: Yeah, when I used the word uh, romantic, I meant it in a rather vulgar, popular sense, in the sense of a sentimentalist way. You know, I didn't mean by it uh, to associate it, associate it with the romantic movement of the late 18th and 19th century Um from, from this perspective of the romantic movement, I see myself largely as a romantic. I, I tend to quote romantic poets uh, often, um, and it is a biased view, but I think it's a necessary compensation for where we are um, in, in our mental ethos uh, today. I don't think the romantics were absolutely true. I think they missed the other side of the story, but we are so biased to- towards the other side now that uh, that romanticism... Uh, has has a place in finding uh, a balance today. Uh, I, I wonder if Schopenhauer would identify himself as a romantic. I'm not sure about that. Uh, he died in 1861, so he lived through you know the, the golden age of the romantic movement. You know Byron uh, uh, um, in music. Um, I keep blanking. Um, Uh, uh, Wagner, (laughs) Uh, Wagner the composer. Um, To what extent that is internalized in his philosophy, I don't know.
0: But I imagine uh, it might be the case that many of the Romantic poets found some inspiration in Schopenhauer's philosophy.
1: That could very well be. Although Schopenhauer Only became known in the last decade of his life. So from 1850 onwards, and that was already the tail end of the Romantic movement. It lasted another, what, 20, 30 years? And and then it was gone. Um, So I don't know whether... He did write his his main book, The World as Will and Representation, in 1818. Um, But it had zero repercussion. I think a couple of hundred copies were printed and most of them were pulped uh, 20 years after. Uh, I see. So, it's it's so like in the tents. So, what,
0: what led to the revival?
1: It's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, uh, the collective human consciousness is a very mysterious thing. Sometimes it chooses to, to become very enthusiastic about certain lines of thought, like Neo-Advaita, you know, over the past uh, couple of decades, sort of exploded in the world scene. And it was... Completely ignored uh, from most of the 20th century. So it's like, what makes uh, people make these choices, or why are certain things popular and not? I mean, I grew up with rock and roll, and now rock and roll is sort of a niche. Uh, <laughs> you know, popular yeah. taste is a mystery. You know, it's there are yeah. archetype archetypes behind this for sure. But uh, I cannot find the pattern of their behavior. So I don't know what made Schopenhauer suddenly explode in the scene. It probably has to do with the fact that he was a, well, he's still considered a pessimist. I don't think he was a real pessimist. But this idea that uh, there is a universal will and it strives blindly uh, could have connected with the general um, cynical ethos of the second half of the 19th century you know this sort of purging of all illusions and the idea that you know the true nature of all reality including of ourselves is this blind crazy striving will sort of goes along with that it shares the same frequency of vibration if you know what I mean that could have played a role
0: mm-hmm. it, it, one might even think it's it's rather compatible with uh, many conventional uh, materialistic thinkers looking at evolution
1: sure sure I think idealism is extremely compatible with successful scientific theories we've had it's just that people have a knee-jerk vulgar reaction uh, of, of immediately saying oh it's not when I when only look at it it is yeah
0: well, Bernardo, you began your career as a computer scientist, and, and then you moved into philosophy. I am under the impression, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, please, uh, that very likely today you, you could be the leading exponent of philosophical idealism.
1: Oh, I, I don't know about that. Uh, and it's not something I even try to think about.
0: Well, I don't mean, you know, in, to flatter you. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to get a handle on uh, what what the scene is like today for a philosophical idealist. Who who are the people who, who, who you, contemporaries, who you find most interesting?
1: A lot of them would identify themselves as, as panpsychists. There's a new name on the block. It's called Cosmopsychism, but it's basically a fashionable new name for idealism. And there are some compelling philosophers out there working in this area. Uh, The reply I gave you was not an attempt to to be modest. Uh, I think we talked about it once. I don't know. But uh, I really don't think about that. What drives me is a funny sense of responsibility. Uh, If I have an idea, um, it sort of burns me from within until it's written and published. And then I am relieved. And then I get another idea, or a refinement of that idea, and then oh, and then that pressure comes again. It's a generally unpleasant thing. Over the past ten years, it has been very unpleasant. So my writing, only now it's becoming pleasurable. Uh, my, my latest book, "The Idea of the World," marked a sort of a, a general relief. Uh, I felt that okay, what I had to write is written. What I had to put out it is out there now i'm writing because i enjoy because there are certain things i want to say but it doesn't have that horrible sense of responsibility that i felt before so that sense is what drives me and from that perspective if i am the main proponent of idealism or not even if uh, are are lots of people reading me or not of course i am interested in being read that's what i do what i do is to be read but uh, Whether it's, you know, millions or thousands or hundreds, it's abstract. Uh, This internal sense of responsibility doesn't go this far. So long as I publish what I feel I have to publish, that's it. The rest, man, it's not my problem anymore. If I'm popular or not, if I sell in the millions or in the hundreds of thousands or in in the tens, not my problem. I did what I needed to do and, and that's it. You know, I don't take responsibility for the rest. I don't know. It's a funny thing in my psychology. Once it's written, it's not my problem anymore. I market it. I talk to you. I want to be read. I do what I can, but it's not like, oh, I really, I really want to be very popular. No, no. If people say, I read your stuff and it's shit, fine. (laughs) Maybe it is for all I know, you know, but uh, I wrote what I needed to write.
0: What I mean, uh, by crediting you in that way is, is that I'm not aware of anybody else who was arguing in such a rigorous, logical fashion in forums like Scientific American, uh, on their website where they publish many of your essays and, uh, you're, you're doing it, uh, in, in a way that's very passionate, that you're telling people, look, you, you, know, our, our philosophical systems and in fact our whole culture is on the wrong track. That, that's a very strong voice. I, I know that I think your, your, thinking is in alignment with people like Ed Kelly and, uh, uh, the anthologies uh, that are coming out, like uh, Irreducible Mind and uh, B- Physicalism and Beyond, or Beyond Physicalism, Beyond I think Physicalism. is their, their second volume. Th- those are the people who I I see you as sort of part of a, a school of thought.
1: Yeah, um, I'm passionate in that sense. Yeah, if something connects to my inner intuition. I'll, 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 fo- I'll follow along uh, I'll do the best I can do about it um, how these things will turn up uh, whether idealism will be mainstream again uh, th- there is one thing I I, I I feel very strongly I think physicalism has its days uh, counted it's just it just doesn't work when you look at it carefully, and you realize what it really implies, what it entails, it just doesn't work. It, it's certainly not the most plausible thing out there. So that will end, whether it will be idealism, some form of panpsychism, dual aspect monism, I don't know. And and I don't feel responsible for it. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. I don't feel really responsible for it. I feel responsible for doing what I can. But if it doesn't turn out the way I would like it to turn out, pfft, no, I, I I would be dead in 50 years anyway <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, in a way I feel much the same, I'm doing these videos, I'm uh, releasing three a week, most of them are pointing in the same direction as your philosophy uh, I come at it as as a parapsychologist with, you know a lot of data uh, empirical data that's, that's pointing in the direction of idealism, uh, but ultimately, yeah, I'm not responsible for how the whole uh, uh, socio-cultural, political, economic environment turns out. All all you and I can do is, is call it the way we see it.
1: Yeah, and, and that environment, the dynamics of that environment is not guided by reason. It's not guided by quality of argument. It's largely guided by and the emotional ethos of the culture at a certain point in time. It's guided by the appeal of certain personalities, the charisma of certain personalities. It's guided by fashion. Uh, A a big fashion underpinning materialism was uh, uh, the fashion of uh, humans self-deprecating, humans enjoying in a dark way this idea that uh, we are nothing. We are cosmic dust. We are good for nothing. We don't mean anything. Whatever we do in our lives doesn't matter because it's a much bigger thing and we are not in the center of it. So th- th- there was a fashion about it, um, sort of a masochist uh, fashion that uh, made people get across as, as tough, you know, uh, tough-minded, people who <laughs> face facts and stare facts in the face. And admit yeah. the truth. You know, somehow they feel better, they feel yeah. different than, than the religious people who sort of you know after wish fulfillment and all that stuff this fashion may be changing um i i don't see it as as you know cynical and as uh, uh, sanguine as it as it was in the 90s and and even before that although i was too young well as a
0: computer scientist you might appreciate uh, many years ago i interviewed marvin minsky uh, one of the founders of uh, the, c- cybernetics, and uh, he he was arguing that uh, we are nothing but meat, and and then he he said very strenuously, he said you should be proud of being meat. <laughs> you
1: know, our psychology is. And I'm with Jung on that. It, it's driven by archetypes, and this is an archetype, a self-deprecating archetype, there, there is a sanguine thing, in the, a sanguine potential in the human mind that is the opposite of inflation. You know, inflation is when we say, I'm God, I'm the center of the universe, I'm all powerful, whatever I think is the truth. And of course, o- the opposites balance themselves off. Uh, and throughout the 20th century, we sort of swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and with this sanguine self-deprecating approach. Uh, but as any cultural fashion, this too will pass. Uh, it's it's a question of time, uh, and, and the question is what will be the next thing. The whole thing is not ultimately driven by argument. I think you have to be to a minimum degree. I will keep using Jungian terminology here. I don't know if um, if it makes sense, but uh, you have to be a minimum degree of individuation. So we are not part uh, of the. The mass consciousness of the isms, you know, idealism, ismism. You know, in, in our culture, we have to use an ism in order to convey your position in, you know, uh, in one pill, you know, like in one word, so people know where to place you in the scheme of things. But uh, the isms are mass uh, cultural, mass consciousness movements that sort of eliminate your individual point of view. You have to surrender your individuality in order to belong to that group, to that uh, labeled, standardized way of thinking, so to say. And I think you have to be to some degree independent of that. You have to extricate yourself from those tendencies in order to look around you and realize the craziness of what's happening around you. And then you can deliberately choose your views based on sound reason. Uh, People who have not made that step yet, are not making their choices based on reason. They are in the grip of archetypes. They are in the grip of fashions, of the ethos of what, what Jung called the spirit of the time, as opposed to the spirit of the depths.
0: Well, Bernardo, this has been a wonderful conversation. Once again, uh, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much for being with me.
1: I find it very enjoyable as well, Jeff. I hope uh, we find another excuse to do this uh, once more. I'm sure we will. Thanks.